Well, good morning, church. My name is Ryan Vinzant. I work with our students' ministry. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 11. Well, before we get started, I just want to share with you this morning that I'm not feeling 100% today. Uh, This has been an off week. It's not one particular thing. It's kind of just a combination of things. Uh, I haven't been sleeping great since the time changed. I know it's only one hour of difference, but somehow it knocks everything off balance. Uh, We've had some heaviness in the lives of some people around us that we really care about. We've been filing our taxes this week, and on top of that, spring's here. It's allergy season, so all that together, I just haven't been feeling my best. And I love teaching. This is one of my favorite things that I get to do. I've been looking forward to this Sunday for a while and being up here. And I just kept waiting throughout the week to wake up and kind of snap out of it. And that just wasn't happening. And so I started feeling anxious as Sunday got closer and closer. And I was up the other night, couldn't sleep. I was just praying. And I felt God reminding me as if he was saying, Ryan, I don't need you to feel your best in order for me to be my best. I don't need you to feel capable in order for me to be capable. And I was reminded that God's spirit is within us, that God has spoken and he is speaking. And we're here today to listen to him. And the funny thing is, we're talking about joy this morning. And it feels like that's the one thing in my life that is coming under attack. And so I just want to invite you for a moment where you are. uh, Would you pray? And would you specifically pray three things? Uh, First, that God would speak this morning. Second, for me, that I would be aware of his spirit while I'm up here. And then lastly, that the joy God has given me will come through in these words, that it won't be overshadowed. So would you just pray that for a minute where you are? Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for gathering your children here. Lord, would you speak to us? And would your joy that you've given us come through? Pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, like I said, it's been an off week and I don't know about you, but for Kayla and I, when we have an off week, we like to start planning our next vacation. So as I was writing this, I was also thinking about some places that I want to go and some things that I want to do. And I realized that where I really want to be this morning is in this passage. In fact, I would rather be in 
Nehemiah 11 and 12 than teach Nehemiah 11 and 12. And there are a number of stories from Scripture that are like that for me. Uh, Stories that I love reading, but that I'd really rather step into and experience. Like crossing the Red Sea, uh, Mount Carmel, Pentecost. It's one thing to read the words and imagine what it's like. It's another to be standing there on dry ground, walls of water on either side as the Egyptian army closes in. Or to feel the heat of this fire from heaven as Elijah prays. Or to hear Peter preaching in modern English, translated by the Holy Spirit. I mean, that would be incredible. And what's surprising about Nehemiah 11 and 12 making this list, that as we're going to read in a moment, there's nothing particularly supernatural that happens. But there's something equally miraculous in the simplicity of normal people filled with joy, and then worshiping God. That's where I want to be. And I want to invite you into that with me this morning. So let's read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 11. We're going to read the first few verses, then we're going to jump about halfway down chapter 12. Nehemiah 11. Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, And the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, the remainder of chapter 11 uh, in the first half of chapter 12 takes us through the list of families who uh, settle there in Jerusalem. We're going to jump to verse 27 of chapter 12. It says this, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites wherever they lived and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers gathered from the region around Jerusalem, from settlements of the Netophathalites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth, for they had built settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. After the priests and Levites had purified themselves, They purified the people, the city gates, and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up on top of the wall, and I appointed two large processions that gave thanks. One went to the right on the wall toward the dung gate. Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the priest's sons with trumpets. And Zechariah, son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mathaniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zechor, son of Asaph, followed, as well as his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Mai, Nathanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. Ezra, the scribe, went in front of him. At the fountain gate, they climbed the steps of the city of David on the ascent of the wall and went above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second Thanksgiving procession went to the left, and I followed it with half the people along the top of the wall, past the Tower of the Ovens to the Broad Wall, above the Ephraim Gate, and by the Old Gate, the Fish Gate, the Tower of Hanadel, and the Tower of the Hundred to the Sheep Gate. They stopped at the Gate of the Guard. The two Thanksgiving processions stood in the house of God. So did I, and half of the officials accompanied me, as well as the priests. We're going to jump uh, halfway through verse 42. 
Then the singers sang with Jezariah as the leader. On that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children also celebrated and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. Hey, pray with me again. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your joy. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we've been journeying through the book of Nehemiah, we've been tracing this big idea of God restoring his covenant people after they've been in exile. And we saw how God began by equipping them and empowering them to do the work of building the wall, rebuilding the wall. But about halfway through the book, we transition where they move beyond the physical labor and into the spiritual labor of recommitting themselves to living as God desires, as his people. Uh, There's another thing that I've been tracking in Nehemiah that's really stood out to me, and that's the emotional landscape of this book. It's really remarkable when we look chapter to chapter uh, to see how all over the place it is. I mean, you start in chapters one and two, Nehemiah, this deep grieving and mourning over his people. You see the excited commitment and the unity of chapter three as they begin building. We see the fury of their opponents in chapter four. We see the outcry of the oppressed poor and Nehemiah's anger at the wealthy oppressors in chapter 5. In chapter 8, we see weeping and rejoicing uh, as the people hear and respond to God's word. And here in chapter 12, I think we reach an emotional climax of sorts where it says that God has filled them with great joy. And notice this, it's that joy overflowing that leads them to worship. That's what we're focusing in on today. Uh, The joy that overflows in worship. The title of our message is The Joy of Worship. Serving in students, I get asked pretty often about heaven. Uh, Normally when it's asked, it's asked something like this. Ryan, when we get to heaven, we're not just gonna like sit around and sing songs forever, right? That sounds... Pretty lame. These aren't your kids, by the way. These are other people's kids. Your kids love singing. And I don't know the eternal itinerary, right? But what I do know is that behind that question is the belief that there is somehow the action of worship disconnected from joy. But when we look at scripture, we see that that is simply not the case. When we look for it, we begin to see this connection between joy and worship all throughout God's word, Uh, especially the Psalms, Psalm 100 verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful songs. Psalm 95 2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. In the New Testament, we see James 5.13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Even in the despair of a lament like Psalm 13, where David is crying out to God, he's saying, my heart is 
filled with sorrow. And he's asking, God, where are you? Even in that, there's this seed of joy that emerges by the time we get to verse five, where he says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart, that heart that was filled with sorrow, my heart rejoices or finds joy in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. There is a link between joy and worship that we can't miss. And it tells us something fundamental about what worship is. Even when we bring sorrow or fear or pain or some other emotion to the table, at its core, worship is an overflow of the joy that we've received from God. John Piper says it this way, the essence of worship is heartfelt, hope-filled joy in the God of mercy. How could we worship apart from joy? That was a question of particular relevance to the exiles living in Babylon. And it's the question at the heart of Psalm 137, written while they were in captivity. Listen to these words. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there, our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Verse four, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? You see, disconnected from the joy of living as God's faithful covenant people in his land, the songs of praise became a bitter torment and a reminder of their failure. But notice that they don't destroy their instruments. It says that they leave them there, hanging on a tree by the river. Because even in their despair, there is a hope that they are going to one day leave exile, and they're going to leave the same way they came in. And when they reach that river, they're going to pick up their instruments and they're going to return with joy to the land of promise and worship their God in Jerusalem. I've been on staff here at Bayou for three years now, which is crazy. And uh, I remember before I worked here, uh, there were two things I heard about this church. Uh, First is they have good coffee. The second is they've got good worship. Now, it was told to me in that order. But here's the thing. I've been thinking a lot about worship these past few weeks. Here's what I'm wrestling with. I don't know if I'm a good worshiper. In fact, more often than not, I think I tend to be more of a worship evaluator rather than a worshiper. I'm doing some digging around in my heart and I think, I think I, I've stumbled on the root of it. You see, just like the book of Nehemiah, I have these highs and lows from my weeks. I have these emotional highs and lows. And I think what happens is I wake up on Sunday, I take these highs and lows, I put them in a bag, bring it with me, and I walk in here, walk up to the front and set it down. And I say, what's up, Michael? What's up, worship band? Uh, happy to be here. Just so you know, I'm going to leave this here 
And heads up, I'm going to need you guys to do something about it. I'm going to need you to take these broken pieces from my week and reshape them into something like joy so that I'm ready to receive from God. And then afterwards, I pick up my bag and I walk out evaluating how well they were able to do that based on the songs we sing and how I felt while we sing them. And we know music is a powerful tool. Worship can affect our hearts. It can reorient our minds to what's true. It can amplify and direct our joy. But I think the problem is when I settle into this pattern of treating worship as a quick emotional fix that produces joy rather than the overflow of joy that I've received from God. If you're in that boat with me this morning, the question we have to ask is how do we receive that joy? How do we obtain that great joy that overflows into worship that can be heard from miles away? I don't think there's a formula But there are two things we see in our passage that I believe directly lead into their joyful worship. The first is the joy of total dedication. The joy of total dedication. Well, there are a few special Sundays that occur on a semi-regular basis for churches. Uh, And though they both have to do with dedication they couldn't be more different from each other. Uh, The first is baby dedication. We love baby dedication. It's great. Uh, You invite your family. uh, Everyone comes in. The babies look cute. Uh, The worst thing that can happen is like Pastor Icky gets puked on. But even then, that's not a problem because he's got 20 more college polos hanging in his office. (laughs) It's awesome. The other... Dedication Sunday, uh, which is common for churches, although I don't think we've actually done it here, is Pledge Dedication Sunday. And if you don't know, that's where the church body is asked to commit a financial pledge or a tithe for the year. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I think we prefer the babies. (laughs) Because it's uncomfortable talking about money and talking about giving So I think we do so a little less often than we should. But in the absence of consistent biblical teaching, I think there's some bad theology of tithing that can pop up, right? So like here's a wrong way to look at it. Uh, I give God 10% and then 90% is mine to do with whatever I want. Rather, tithing points us to the reality that as we purposefully set aside and dedicate a portion of what God blesses us with, it's a representative that all of it belongs to God and his purposes. Now you might be thinking, Ryan, this is a worship sermon, not a money sermon. Stick to the script. Uh, But the reason I bring this up is because chapter 10, right before this, we see the people commit to giving a tithe. And at the beginning of chapter 11 that we read, we see another tithe. And it's easy to miss because it's not called that and it's not money or crops, but it's a tithe nonetheless. Go back to chapter 11. 
says, now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of 10 to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine tenths remained in their towns. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, on a practical level, this makes sense, right? They just spent all this time and effort rebuilding the wall. It would be kind of pointless if no one actually used it. But when we think about the main thread of Nehemiah, of God restoring his covenant people, what we see is that this tithe of individuals set apart and chosen to live in Jerusalem represents that they are all, in their entirety, a people dedicated to God and his purposes. In part, I really believe it's this dedication of chapter 11 that leads to the joy and worship of chapter 12. Paul picks up on this idea in Romans 12, where he defines our spiritual act of worship as offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy or set apart in dedication to God. And what Paul describes, John actually sees in the book of Revelation, in this heavenly vision of chapter 4. He sees these 24 elders sitting around the throne of God, worshiping. And as they worship, they take their crowns and they just throw them at God's feet. The crowns representing all they were and accomplished in their life. Set before God. And you can bet that they did so joyfully. And of course, the greatest example is Jesus himself, who set aside his crown, who offered his body as a living sacrifice, who said on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And here we might stop and ask, I see the dedication, but where's the joy in the cross? Sure, there's joy because of the cross, but there doesn't seem to be much joy in the cross. And that's where the writer of Hebrews would disagree. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scoring its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, even in this most excruciating moment, there was a joy set before him. That word translated as set before literally means that whatever is set before can be seen. It can be grasped. It's the joy of total dedication as Jesus dedicated not only himself, but everyone who would put their trust in him and follow him. That's why he's called the pioneer of our faith here. It means that he's the one who's gone first and set the path for us to follow. And that path always leads to a cross, the place where we join Christ in surrendering to God and dedicating ourselves to him. So no, a cross doesn't sound like a joyful place. But there, there is a joy set before us, the joy of total dedication. So what do we do with this? The application here is simple and yet profoundly difficult. 
we need to dedicate ourselves in totality. If this sounds familiar coming from me, my last sermon was on surrender, and dedication is simply the next inseparable step. In surrender, we give up ourselves. In dedication, we present that self to God. Dedication, full dedication, is a huge task. It's a lifelong task. So maybe there's an area that we can start this week. Here's one, uh, our attention. Our attention is different than our time. If you're married or been with family over Christmas, you know that there's a difference between giving someone your time and giving them your attention. Uh, Here at Bayou, our first vision statement is that we would have a radical focus on Jesus. And focus has everything to do with attention. Here's the thing. Our attention is a limited resource. And the world is constantly vying for our attention. Most of the time, I give it away like it's nothing. If I have a spare 15 seconds waiting in a line, I can pull out my phone and immediately find something to give my attention to. It doesn't even have to be interesting. It's a limited resource. But because it's a limited resource, like our time, like our money, it can be dedicated. It can be tithed. What if this week you gave God your moments? Those moments where you would seek something out to give your attention to. You instead dedicated those moments to God. It can be throughout your day. It can be at designated times. Uh, I know a couple here that they have two alarms set on their phone, uh, 10 a.m., 2 p.m. And when those go off, they just spend a moment giving God their undivided attention. And you might wonder, what difference does a few moments make? But one, it adds up. You'll be surprised just how many moments you have to give. And two, it's a tithe. As we purposefully set aside moments to give our attention to God, we'll be reminded of the reality that all of our moments are his. And that will truly change how we live. There is a joy in dedicating ourselves to God. And the second thing we see in our passage is that there is a joy in standing on God's completed work. There's a joy in standing on God's completed work. In college and now in seminary, I've written quite a few papers. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that there is a difference between it's finished and I'm done. It's finished means it's complete. All the edits have been made, it's turned in, and I stand behind my work. Uh, I'm done means I'm done working on it. Uh, I can't say it's finished, but it's as good as it's going to get. And it kind of just hangs out on my desktop until I finally have to turn it in and just hope it doesn't fall apart. But here's the difference. There is some relief in being done but there is joy in completion and finishing. We're told back in chapter six that the wall was completed. It took them 52 days. But if chapter six was them turning in their paper, then chapter 12 could be considered it being graded. 
as Nehemiah invites the Levites from all over, and they go up onto the wall and march around it. And I don't know about you, but if we said for the next two months as a church, we're going to repair a wall, and it's going to be two and a half miles long, 40 feet high, eight or nine feet thick, and then we're all going to go get up there and have a church service, I'd be pretty nervous about that. Seems like a liability. But of course, the builders knew that it wasn't their work that built the wall. It wasn't their work that made the wall possible. It was God's. God who brought Nehemiah and started the work and gave them the strength. He was the one who finished it. So to stand on the completed wall was to put their full trust in what God had built. Back in chapter four, you may remember, the enemies of the builders were sitting around having a roast session. And one of them, Tobiah the Ammonite, made the comment that even if a fox climbed up what they were building, he would break down their stone wall. Everyone laughed. Uh, Tobiah, chronically insecure, replayed the moment in his head for the next few weeks. So imagine their shock when they look out and they see this mass of people standing on the wall, claiming victory and trust in their God in defiance of their enemies. Then they hear them sing. That's the joy of standing on God's completed work. And church, this same joy is available to us because Jesus is not only the pioneer of our faith, he's also the perfecter or what that word literally means, the finisher, the one who has brought to completion. As Jesus hangs on the cross, one final breath in his lungs, he doesn't say, well, I'm done. This is as good as it's going to get. No, he says, it is finished. Church, are we standing on that? Standing on the finished work of Christ means that all Jesus was and is, is ours by faith. His obedience is our obedience. His faithfulness is our faithfulness. His innocence is our innocence. His power is our power. His honor and place in God's family is our honor and adoption. His mission is our mission. His death is our death to sin. His resurrection is our resurrection to new life in the spirit. His compassion is our compassion. Are we standing on that? It's not enough to acknowledge or admire Jesus' work. Not if we want to experience the joy. Paul writes in Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's the finished work of Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The joy of rejoicing has everything to do with where we're standing. A few chapters later in Romans, 
Paul tells us how we can know that we're standing on the finished work of Christ. In chapter 10, he's referring to the Jews who refuse to recognize Christ's work. And listen to what he says. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish or to make stand their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the key. When we fail to stand on what Christ has finished, we will always try to build our own platform to stand on. For the Jews in Paul's day, uh, they refused to stand on Christ's righteousness by faith. So they attempted to build their own righteousness through the works of the law. This is a huge risk for us today. But this is also true in every part of Christ's completed work. If we refuse to stand on Christ's power by faith, we will try to build our own power, our own network and resources. If we refuse to stand on Christ's honor by faith, we will try to build our own honor and micromanage our reputations. If we refuse to stand on Christ's mission by faith, we will build and follow our own agenda. For some of us this week, Maybe it's time to look down and ask, what am I standing on? Is it the finished work of Christ that cannot be added to, or is it something that I'm building? Here's one way you can tell. How stable is your standing? Because Christ's work is finished, on your best day and your worst day, your position in him is solid. In your day of greatest sin and failure, do you trust that Christ's righteousness has given you access to God's presence and his grace? Or do you wait until your sin is more manageable? In the days you feel weakest, do you act in the confidence of Christ's spirit? Or do you wait until you have more energy or feel more capable? On the Sundays you walk in here feeling most ashamed, do you approach God as a loving father who has chosen you and delights to welcome his children? Or do you try to make deals to be better this week? Christ's work cannot be added to or supplemented on our best days or our worst days. It is finished. Will we stand on that? It is only when we do that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Whatever you're standing on, we can learn to stand on Christ's work. I've never taught a baby how to walk before, uh, but I'm told that the prereq is teaching them how to stand. And according to wikihow.com, that's easy. Only a few steps with helpful illustrations. Uh, The first is that you hold them over the ground just until their feet dangle and barely touch the floor. You can bounce them around a little bit if you want. And then the second step is you slowly put more and more weight and allow it to reach their legs until finally, boom, standing on their own. Two steps. That's it. 
thanks to wikihow.com, I'm ready to be a dad. Here's the thing. For Christians, learning to walk by faith, we first have to learn to stand on God's completed work. And the process for that is the same as the baby, just reversed. We start with all of our weight on ourselves, trusting our obedience, trusting our reputation, trusting our ability. Slowly, we allow ourselves to lean into the hands of our Heavenly Father, give Him more and more each day, until finally we're standing on his good power and mercy alone. If you want to take that step today, in a moment, we're going to invite you to come forward. We'll have our prayer team up here at the front. They would love to to pray with you and talk through what it looks like to put a little bit more of your weight on the God who is there, on the God who is strong, on the God who invites us to trust him. But as we wrap up today, maybe like me, you're realizing this morning that it's time for a shift when it comes to your worship, to become a worshiper, overflowing with God's joy rather than an evaluator. The good news is that we have a lot of worship ahead of us. Another piece of good news is that we don't have to go back to Nehemiah 12 to experience this firsthand. This joy can be ours as we dedicate ourselves to God and stand on his completed work. Tonight, we're excited to invite you to do just that as we open up these garage doors and let our worship be heard from miles away. And you know what? I'm gonna go ahead and say it. It's going to be good worship, not because of the band or the songs or the production, but because the worshipers are filled with great joy. Our hope is that it wouldn't just be a rerun of Nehemiah 12, but also a preview of Revelation 19, where John writes this, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your joy. God, we thank you for your love. That love is not simply something you have. It's who you are. God, and you have given us yourself. Lord, I just confess that I have walked in here 
far too many times seeking to feel different. God, rather than worshiping you from a place of intimate surrender and trust, God, I pray that our worship would be different. I pray that my worship would be different. God, we love you. I want to invite our prayer team to come forward. They're going to be standing to my right and to my left. If you need prayer for anything at all, we invite you to come forward and pray with them. Lord, we give you this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.